right on. Welcome to Securitas Conversations with Bill and Dan, episode 59 for Sunday, October 9th, 2011. I am Bill Watman. And I am Dan Gottesman. And we have a guest today. Yes. Gary, would you like to introduce yourself? I am Gary Yost. Which is uh, fantastic, because Gary emailed me out of the blue, what was it, two weeks ago? Uh, it was a couple weeks ago. He's actually yeah. He actually listens to the podcast. Amazing. We actually have a <laughs> podcast listener. This is amazing. But you, you, you haven't said the context in which I listen to you. Yeah. It's true. He, he listens to us to fall asleep. Oh. <laughs> well, that, is that really true, or is that just a little snarky zing towards us? Oh, no, no. It's absolutely true. You are... <laughs> You're the digital equivalent of Ambien for me. Wow. <laughs> that's fantastic. Uh, I think we are for a number of our listeners. Yeah. Uh, but that's okay. Well, <laughs> at least, you know, Dan is. Oh, yeah? Dan's voice is much more kind of somnolent and low-key, laid back. And <laughs> Bill, you're, you're a little more enthusiastic. And it's true. <laughs> so, um, so when I, when, you know, I try to balance the, the levels so I can just barely hear you. Okay. But when... And I can just barely hear Dan. You're still really loud like that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I work it out. Right you know on. what? I could do a custom mix just for you. There you go. <laughs> or I just, I, we, you know what? Give we should just stereo mix and I'll, I'll be able to mix it myself. Or we could just send you uh, Dan's uh, track yeah. each week and then you just silence and then Dan every once in a while <laughs> saying, yeah, yeah, just sure. listening to his part would yeah, be exactly. more efficient probably. Well, uh, <laughs> Gary is a good guest for the show because he is a fantastic photographer. Oh, thank you. Uh, which we are going to get into in some depth because mm-hmm. uh, I'm fascinated by that side of things. Um, much of the world may know Gary because he made a little piece of software back in what? When did you start that? Eighty what? Uh, we started working on 3D Studio in 1988. Yeah, Whoa. Gary's the guy who started 3D Studio. So, you know, if you want somebody who knows what they're talking about, this is the guy. What's 3D yeah, no, Studio? Bill? It's not called 3D Studio anymore. No, no it's let's, not. Let's, let's, uh, let's educate some of our, our less familiar users. What, what, what exact, what's the big deal about 3D Studio? Bill? Gary's like, I, I don't know what the big deal <laughs> No, the, the, 3D Studio is like the preeminent uh, 3D modeling and rendering software, right, for the last 25 years or so. It is the most pirated piece of 3D <laughs> visualization and animation software in the world, yeah. Wow. Uh, now, at the time, Gary, when you you were a photographer before, were interested in photography before? I was crazy enough to attempt to be a photographer in my early 20s, yes. Uh, but you obviously also had computer chops. Uh, at that time, I had some very basic, literally, computer chops uh, from... You know, learning basic in high school in the um, nineteen, well, late nineteen seventies. So you uh, didn't have an education in comp sci. No, ac- actually, uh, I don't have much of an education at all. <laughs> but you were able to write the software that is still, you know, around today. Well, the reality is that I started um, pretty much, uh, I started thinking that I could write this software, but quickly realized that I wasn't a good enough programmer to write something as complicated as that. So I found some brilliant people who do, yeah. And uh, told them what to do for about 10 years. No, um, at the time, was there anything else in the market that did the same kind of stuff? Oh yeah, there was uh, there was uh, Alias Studio and the Wavefront Advanced Visualizer. Okay, a thing called Vertigo out of British Columbia. They were all software packages that ran on the Silicon Graphics Iris workstations. I, I think the retail price of uh, Wavefront at that time was forty thousand dollars. Yeah, I remember. We, I went to the the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, and it was a really big deal. When we got our SGI lab of like, I think it was ten indigos, um, and this was a little later than what you're talking about. Wavefront was definitely on the on the list, but uh, Soft Image had just came out, and that was the the big package of of yeah of the time. So that's what yeah, we that's had. right. Yeah. Well, now yeah, you, that, you want to do right. the same thing on a PC? Is that the angle? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we didn't have the money. Uh, you know, I had I had been an avid photographer. I couldn't make any money at that in the uh, 
in the late 70s and early 80s and uh, some of the early microcomputers like the Sinclair came out and I saw how maybe it would be possible to kind of do photography or some sort of synthetic imagery on these things and maybe there was more money in it so uh, I looked around and, and by the mid 80s these other packages came out but they were so expensive we we obviously couldn't afford them and so we thought well maybe we could do it ourselves yeah. so uh, it was just was a big sidetrack journey for 10 years to uh, to make that happen to the point where you really can do photography of a sort sure inside those machines now you know I, I find fascinating in the 3d realm is that it almost feels like the 3d studio max people the maya people the soft image people they're almost little separate cultures inside of 3d and they all kind of it's like if you do this kind of work you tend towards this tool <laughs> it's kind of like the the Nikon versus Canon shooter. Thing. Is is that what it's like? I, I mean, I, I don't know enough. I'm not in it enough, but I know people who use soft image and they do a lot of product design, like designing like hardware for doors and that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? That guy uses soft image, and then I have other friends who use 3D Studio Max to do a lot of architectural work. You know? Mm. Uh, yeah. Is, is, it, it is. It is like that. It's it's a lot different than the Nikon versus Canon shooter debate because there are really different feature sets in each of those packages. They come from different design philosophies, and um, the 3ds Max philosophy was always to be a Swiss Army knife, where you could pretty much do anything you wanted. Where some of the other packages were a little more specialized. Sure. It almost kind of feels like the music software thing where some started out as audio software that added MIDI, some were MIDI software that added audio. Mm. Right? You know, right. it's like so, so they, they have their strengths and their weaknesses. And yet, while they all have a very similar uh, feature set now, it's sort of like where they came from defines what they are. Yeah, you know? sure. I remember uh, when I was getting first getting into 3D, you know, again in college and just kind of getting my head around what it was, um, the, 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 the basic thing to sort of carry on with uh, your analogy, Bill, um, in the world of 3D, there, you know, there are bas- I guess we'll say there's three main aspects to it. There's the modeling aspect, which is where you, you know, you work in, you know, wireframe or whatever, you know, blob mode or whatever. And, and you, you know, you're actually, it's kind of like you're virtually sculpting your thing. Then there's the, um, the shading and the rendering end of it where you make the thing that you've you've sculpted make it look as real or as as how you know specific as you want it and then there's a totally different angle of animation where you make the thing move and you know there's camera movements and lighting and all that other stuff and there's probably other maybe one or two other like sub subheadings but those are the three biggies right would you say gary yeah there are three big ones but the second one where you're doing the rendering is really split up into two separate areas and one is the creation of the look mm-hmm. of the object it's kind of a the surface texture and the um, the way it it reflects light and uh, the dielectric properties of the object and then the other aspect of that is lighting mm. sure and and they're really different. And if you were to go to a visual effects studio, most people would specialize in one or the other. Gotcha. They do textures or they do the light. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. And then, like you're saying, um, I mean, in my experience, uh, I, my first introduction to 3D Studio Max was uh, I used to work at this uh, place that made video games. And uh, Which place was that? It was called uh, Virtual World Entertainment, um, hmm. based out of Chicago. They changed names a couple of times. They were also known as FASA Interactive, and then they eventually got bought by Microsoft. Um, but the main titles that they were uh, producing were the BattleTech and MechWarrior series of oh, games. Yeah. Those, you know, the, sure. the giant robots. And um, one of the most amazing modelers I've ever seen was his favorite tool was uh, 3D Studio Max, and it was just an in, in, incredible to watch this kid, you know, crank these things out, and they just look so amazing. See, um, the first time I used 3D Studio was probably in 1993 when I played with a pirated copy to make a planet and a spaceship flying around it. Nice. Um, or were you uh, eight years old? <laughs> no. Actually, what was I then? I was in college. 93, I was in college. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah. But, I mean, it's those those pieces of software are the kinds of things where unless you dedicate yourself to them, they are so deep 
that and so many especially 3d studio there's so many uh options and so many uh, uh different angles and 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 axes of 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 change that you can make on any particular anything it's just it's a, it's it's this huge universe of stuff that you can throw yourself into and it's such a big world that you almost have to to close down to a smaller concept of what you're trying to do because there's too many options you know what i mean or at least we, the way i thought we, we had another word for that what was and, that uh, that was that you had to be a mutant <laughs> yeah in order to do this stuff. <laughs> yeah i mean like making the tools is one thing but then watching what the people do with the tools right. oh making the tools was very straightforward compared to using the tools well you know good well we're you know you're effectively giving people the tools to play god from start to finish and and that's a whole different thing than tool making yeah yeah and you know i could never do anything more than you know make flying teapots and animated stellated icosahedrons and things but these people would you know make worlds and just blow me away well gary explain to me the teapot thing i never understood that Oh, yeah. well, there's a, a legendary character in the field of three-dimensional computer graphics named Dr. Ivan Sutherland, and he came out of the University of Utah, and uh, that was in the 1960s. And uh, he developed some of the first rendering algorithms, and he wanted to create a universal object that contained a combination of convex and concave surfaces along with things like undercuts and uh, other little details that would uh, show off uh, what a renderer could do uh, in a very general way. So he came up with this thing called the University of Utah Teapot. And uh, when we put that into 3ds Max uh, during development in 1994 and 1995, uh, it was our homage to Dr. Sutherland. So this was sort of like the uh, standard complex object to sort of test things yeah, with. Exactly. That's really funny. No, That's yes. So you you it was originally written in for DOS. That's right. We 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 started in 1988 under MS-DOS and during development we were working in 16-bit MS-DOS and that was obviously ridiculously poor for memory addressing and uh, there was a 32-bit DOS extender called FarLap hmm. that we um, we ported 3DS DOS over to only about a month before we released it in October of 1990. Uh, crazy month, and and so it was a 32-bit product. And then we just kind of bided our time and waited for a 32-bit version of Windows to appear. We got an early beta of. Uh, Windows NT for Microsoft, I believe, in uh, mm. maybe 1993. I love the early NT. <laughs> <laughs> so hey. um, I, I'm just I'm curious, Gary. Um, <clears throat> in the old days of like um, software development, when the scene wasn't anywhere near as um, <clears throat> big and complicated as it is today, um, I think you. I mean, the the playing field is a little bit more. I don't know, smaller, right? Wouldn't Wouldn't you say? There were less people competing with. Uh, uh, yes and no. Um, when we started, we were selling. Well, Autodesk was selling 3D Studio for thirty five hundred. I think that's what it still costs. But we were going up against maybe eight different twenty five to forty five thousand dollar packages, uh-huh. and we we put them out of business effectively. Well, what was the price of uh, 3D Studio Max? Um, 3D Studio Max was also 3DS Max was $3,500 and it it still is but see what happened over the last 10 years is Autodesk acquired all of the 3D companies yeah yeah Yeah, they really did they became like just just this giant this hegemony thing yeah and so there there is only you know there's one company with maybe they have 90% of the market share between Max and Maya and Softimage, and there are a couple little companies that share five to ten percent of the market share. Mm. So it's kind of sad. It's it's very it's very sad. There's no real innovation in 3D anymore, and I you, guess I you have think to think there's take, room for it. Um, 
Or are, there, or are yeah, those tools mature? There's room to make it possible for people who are not mutant freaks to play God inside the computer, certainly. Yeah. There, there, there's definitely room for that. Um, I, I was going to say that I, I actually take a lot of responsibility for this commoditization of the 3D marketplace because I was able to create this stuff with a very small team of four to five people which allowed us to do it at very low cost mm-hmm. and the uh, the other guys Pelias and Soft Image Wayfront they had teams of over 100 120 engineers each hmm. and that's why they had to charge so much and it's, we just had this magic thing that enabled us to be so efficient with a very small group and unfortunately it's not possible to innovate unless you make some money and so we set this very low priced standard that nobody else could really match so in some ways commoditizing all this technology and making it available for everybody kind of came to bite us in the end yeah and now, did, uh did the other did the other did the other competitors at the time you must have known some of the people on those teams, right? Or, you know what I mean, I, some sort of contact. I mean, that's a I fairly knew, small uh, world, you know. You know, back way back then, I, yeah. I knew a couple of the people, but our heads were down, you know, so so far. That, there was no threaten, uh, threats to you guys? Like, what are you guys doing? You're ruining everything. We, we did. There was a, yeah, there were a couple of things. There was a memo that came out the first day of SIGGRAPH in 1990. Down in Dallas, when the alias people uh, said to their customer base that we were not a threat, you're a toy, <laughs> and that, that we were a toy, and they should just ignore us, mm. and um, that you know that was kind of amusing. Yeah, you know what's? Uh, yeah, you know, <clears throat> yeah. Go say, ahead. I was going to say something interesting. Um, uh, as you know, Bill and I work predominantly in the photo world, and there there's sort of an ongoing. <clears throat> um, I don't know what you call. Yeah, I don't. Want, I I wouldn't call it a controversy, but I would call it a. Well, let's call it a discussion right now. Um, mm-hmm. about um how much to charge and something that's <laughs> and, it, and it's come up you know more and more frequently. And I, someone just I read another yet another you know blog um, article about it not too long ago where. Um, something what you know your little story about <clears throat> how you guys commoditized everything sort of reminds me of what what seems to be happening. It's you know it's it's definitely a huge trend in the photo business now uh, because digital cameras have gotten as good and as inexpensive as they are. So many more people are are you know jumping in and and undercutting one another. And now you know the 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 quote unquote value you know the the amount of money anyway that uh, that you can charge has just fallen through the floor. You know it's kind of crazy. It's that's very similar to what I was just saying about the 3D market. Yeah. What What do you think is the next step for that? What's the answer? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that part of the problem is that I mean there there weren't that many players in the space that you're working in. I mean, a handful, right? That you know, mm-hmm. some of them. Um, I think part of the problem is now in the photo world that there's not enough distinction between different people people think that a photographer is a photographer is a photographer and i think that that's it's this is an artistic pursuit you know more than it is an engineering thing uh so it's not like you can compare feature sets and say you know <laughs> oh, these two are equivalent this one costs 10 times less then that makes sense um I think part of the problem is just like with writing, you know, you, you get people and really great writers and they can't make more than a hundred dollars a column because, Oh, there's so many writers out there and one of those will take the thing. Well, it's like, well, are they as good of a writer as I am? You know, will they, will the, will the results be as good? Um, and for a lot of people, the commoditization concept, I think is, is, is an interesting thing from a, from a, from an economic point of view, but I don't think it artistically or the results always shaking out the same, you know? I think the overall quality of photography is arguably going down because there's a whole lot more people who are saying, oh, I'll charge you less, but they're not as good a photographer, so the results are less, you know? Um, I agree. I completely agree. And I think that there's a point at which in all of these things, these artistic things, where 
it'll turn around and people will say, okay, well, that's great. Yeah, I can get pictures taken of me and my fiance for our thing for $200, but I want somebody who's going to be good at it, so I'm going to pay $1,000. Uh, you know, yeah. uh, so I, I hope that it'll shake out in that way where there will be a stratification based on ability. I don't I mean, as, as much as I would love for that to happen, I don't I don't see that happening anytime soon, because unfortunately, another trend that I've seen, which is, I think, directly related to what we're talking about here is the degradation of the concept of quality. <laughs> um, sure. I mean, take a cruise on Facebook Good enough. or Flickr. Exactly. Um, n- you know, now people are compromising so much more quickly and readily and, you know, little details that, you know, we would obsess over become, become complete and total non-issues. To, yeah. To but people. you know, pictures from like, Oh, it's me and my friends out at night is one thing, but you know, I have a lot of people who call me up and say, you know, or write me emails. Look, Gary, the email he wrote me the other day was saying, you know, he loves the podcast. He likes my work. And it's like there are people who come and say, wow, your portraits are really great. And not just like, oh, you take good pictures of people, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like that, that. Like, no, your portraits are better than the homogeny that's out there otherwise, you know. I think so. And I, and I take a certain amount of pride from that, whether or not you're right, Dan, whether or not it does me any good, <laughs> you know, or, yeah. or whether or not that means that. I mean, there there was a time when your average, you know, uh, high school uh, school photographer slash you know does a few weddings on the weekends kind of thing mm-hmm. could make one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. You know, it's true. Um, where okay, maybe they can't now. I just want to make a decent living wage. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that's there's the point at which it gets it, the point at which the prices come down so much that the only people who can make art are people who are doing it on the side. That gets sad. Yeah. That well, is, that is I, I have I have a theory. Okay. And um, my theory about this, I completely agree with everything you say. And how do you differentiate yourself as a as a real artist in this business who's doing something unique? And the way I've been doing it is I've been learning alternative processes. Yeah. Like platinum palladium printing and slowing down chromate, and um, learning how to really craft an image. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you can produce a print that, like a platinum palladium print, is just a gorgeous media. Yeah. And it'll last forever, literally, as long as that piece of paper is around. And it, it has a quality to it, you know, which you can't do digitally. And, yep. and the, the workflow for that is fantastic now with, with you know, creating a digital negative. Yeah. And, um, and you don't really need a lot of equipment to get into platinum palladium. But gum bichromate, it's a, it's a little more involved and some of the other processes are a little more involved but I think if you know if we explore some of the first principles tools that come from the roots of photography we can differentiate ourselves from you know the flicker crowd sure hmm. now what what percentage of the public do you think to put it harshly cares you know or, or knows the difference well, I, th- I think that when you hold one of these prints in your hands, yeah, y- you don't have to know that it was made in such and such process, but you instinctively feel that it's different mm-hmm. than you know what you can have printed over at Costco. Yeah, and um, you know if if you're a serious portrait photographer, it's just another avenue that um, can give you an edge over you know the mass yeah. uh, you know group of photographers out there yeah i mean even the the concept of actually printing i mean dan and i have done we've talked about this on the podcast like dan take pictures but you rarely print right dan yeah i um i mean I, i've gotten more into it a little bit more recently but uh but that that also stems from my my personal approach to photography which is very different than yours yeah but i mean i there was a point at which i remember i was sitting talking to I think it was Greenfield Sanders. I was over at Timothy Greenfield Sanders' place, and we were talking about how I did those Drabble pictures. Mm -hmm. And he was like, well, have you printed them? And, you know, do you have a a set of prints? And I was like, well, I've printed out a few of them. He's like, no, you need to print all of them, make, sign them, date them, put them in a box. And, like, that is the official copy of those images, you know, like that until it's printed, it's not a final image. In, in his, uh, I agree. In his estimation. Yeah. I, I, I feel the same way. It doesn't exist as a finished piece of work until it's 
uh, it's in printed form. Yeah. And, and, and he, I mean, granted he makes a lot of money so he can, and Epson gave him a nice 9,600, you know, <laughs> large format printer in his basement. So, you know, for him, it's fine. Me, if I was going to print 13 by 19 of everything I do, it would cost me thousands of dollars a year. You know? no, not to mention you'd run out of room. Plus I'd run out of room. Right. He's got literally a basement full of prints. Right. Um, well, I, I don't think everything you do has to achieve that final yeah. uh, instantiation. Sure. It just has to be, you know, your portfolio. Yeah. Do you do so so you do a lot of stuff wet prints from digital negatives? I do some. Okay. Not uh, not, not as much as I'd like to because it um, I don't have a dark room at home so I have to use somebody else's dark room and How how large of a digital negative do you make? Uh, well, you just you make it as large as you want. That's you, the you make contact print. prints, like essentially. Yeah, you make, these are all contact prints. Okay, so, yeah. you know, I I have my I have a, a thirteen by nineteen capability at home, so yeah. I can make you know pretty twelve by eighteen negatives is mm-hmm. pretty typical for me. You um, know, it's it's amazing that I, I went to a friend's house and printed some stuff uh, at a friend's. Uh, she had like a little dark room at her parents' place upstate. And I went and printed a few things, Gary, and like, and I mean, I'm not a master printer by any means, but I understand the process and, you know, ran through a few and and got what I thought was a pretty nice print. And I took it home and then I compared it to a print that I had made from the file, you know, with a nice pigment inkjet printer. And it wasn't as good as the inkjet print, like as far as like the overall tonal quality of it, you know, Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. and this has a lot to do with you know, my own lack of skill in the dark room. And I was using, you know, coated paper cause I wasn't into the, fi- you know, I wasn't high enough to do the fancy stuff. Um, but it just kind of cracked me up that I'm like, I worked for three hours to get this one nice print. <laughs> and it's not even as good as the one that and came it's out not as good printer. as the print that I can make out of my, pr- yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. I, personally, I have a certain amount of like frustration with the dark room just cause I'm like, ugh. It's like I feel like I'm putting myself in purgatory, not purgatory, that I'm flagellating myself, like <laughs> making it hard just to make it hard. Well, the the great thing about platinum palladium is once it, all the difficulty is in the digital negative process and you have to do test patches and things until you get your curves right in Photoshop. Yeah. But once you do that, actual printing is trivial. It's it's just a matter of putting a few drops of this platinum palladium mixture on this paper and you can use the best fine art paper in the world because it's not photo paper yeah and then you use a little glass rod to just spread this stuff uh, as an emulsion over the paper and and you expose the thing to light just using sunlight and um, it's going to come out perfect every time once right. you get that that curve setting right in, in Photoshop for your negatives. All right, I'm coming out, and you're going to teach me. Yes, yeah, so actually, <laughs> so Gary, for the for the less experienced photographers um, that are listening, can you give us a quick rundown of your of your process, just sort of top to bottom, like what kind of camera you're using, and and then and how does it all work? Well, I use a camera with a piece of black tape over the name. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Are you I'm being a little wise ass? No, it, that's I'm, I'm being a wise ass. No, I mean I don't. That's, I mean I, I, I actually I have a piece of black tape over my names too. No, I, I read that. I, I totally love that. Um, I, I'm I'm not I'm not looking for brand name. I'm just I mean for all we know you're shooting four by five negative film. You know I mean I don't. Think, oh no no no! Yeah. I'm just a, a DSLR shooter. I I use a D seven hundred. Okay. Um, and uh, I have a lens fetish. Uh oh. <laughs> and um. And I, Look, and I have a this and is, I have a, this is a family safe show, Gary. Um, are you are you a serious lens guy? Like you like high end glass? Um, well, I, I stick to Nikon. You actually I, stick to their lenses, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I they they make some pretty decent lenses. As as no, that's it's funny though that a lot of people give Canon and Nikon crap about their glass, but the high end Canon and the high end Nikon glass is is. As in the same league as the stuff from Zeiss and and Leica and you know yeah it, it has a different look I mean the Japanese yeah. look is um, there the way you know Nikon is doing micro contrast mm-hmm. with their whatever they you know the the crystal nano coating or nano crystal coating I mean they they're they're just trying to do what Zeiss has been the doing T-Star. for a long time yeah, yeah. and I, I I like what Zeiss does better. 
but um, I do. Um, but 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 that but that's a somewhat subjective. Th- I mean, like from technical point of view, a lot of these things are all on the same level. You may prefer one over the other, but it's not like it's right. less than. You know what I mean? Right, right. No, I'm 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 really happy with the high end Nikon glass. It's absolutely gorgeous. Wait, are you a prime guy or are you a zoom guy? I have a combination of both. Do, wait, I mean, do you happen to have that twenty eight to three hundred thing that? Uh, no, no, I'm not. That a, one? I'm not a. I'm not a big zoom. I'm a relatively. I mean, my biggest zoom I have is seventy to two hundred. Okay. They have a, they have a nice seventy to two hundred. Because Jay Mazel uses that giant like twenty eight to three hundred, and it kills me. I can't believe they can make a a zoom range that far. Well, Jay Mazel could use any lens he wants. Exactly. Yeah. True. It'd be great. Yeah. Exactly. That's, I mean, come on, guys. Any even the cheapest lens is better than. The no, lens you're right. I used to use, and everyone used to use in the old days. It, well, you it, know. Dan and I were talking about that on we were on the subway the other day coming back from a shoot and I, he was talking about some old uh what was it the Nikon macro is that what we were talking about Yeah the, I was telling like him, the 105 the 105 No the 55 Oh uh, the 55 the one yeah. the one from like the the 70s Yeah and, and we were just saying though that like you know the the people who like are all nostalgic about the 70s SLR glass I'm like they weren't really that good back then like you know and and put oh. them on put them on a big enough sensor where you see the faults and that's They're right. really obvious, the faults, you know. Um, that that nostalgia doesn't actually work, is not quantitatively there, you know. Uh, I am totally, I'm not a nostalgia person at all. <laughs> yeah, just fascinating. All right, so you take your pictures with your digital SLR. I do, that's what I do. And yeah, and I, I'm a, I'm a, you know, Lightroom Photoshop geek. Mm-hmm. I, I absolutely adore Photoshop. I've got, I've got a real good friend who's head of the, Photoshop like marketing and new business development team and he gives me all the new Adobe stuff for free. Must be nice. So I'm I'm real lucky that way and and uh, I spend, you know, a few hours every day uh in Photoshop um learning new things and and playing around. It's so cool to be uh in front of a piece of software that has infinite depth. In fact, the Knoll brothers started that project the year we started 3D Studio. Wow. And I have just the most unbelievable respect for John and Thomas. Yeah, well, those guys are also really like insanely genius, special. Like they are, <laughs> they are. They're they're unique people on this planet. Yeah, yeah. People who make and, their own tools uh, to do their own work is, I mean, that transcending you know digital computer whatever. Just you know, people who can make their own tools and then make amazing things with them. I think yeah. are in a special sort of class of their own. Yeah. Well, those two guys are. They definitely have their own category yeah and every time i'm in photoshop i'm just you know blown away by how deep it is and um just what a beautiful piece of software it is yeah it's it's there there really is no competitor no 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 there's nothing there's nothing else there'll never be anything else like it and adobe loves that (laughs) (laughs) again though you have to be really really quite uh, mutated in order to you know truly exploit what yeah. that thing has to offer and and yet there are tens of thousands of people who've really gotten to a very high level with that piece of software yeah well you know when i used to do i used to do art direction and advertising for years and a lot of it was uh you know designing websites and designing ads and all that kind of stuff but i wasn't using it in the same way that i use it now in fact in some ways i was using a completely different set of tools you know uh hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, illustration tools and things yeah, like that. Yeah, that kind of stuff. And it's just funny how you could you could go into Photoshop and use it for five, ten years and never touch an entire side of the whole thing, you know. Oh, easily. There's people who like yeah. have no idea what the channels panel could be used for and why you would ever use that palette, you know. Um or, or I, I still never used the pen tool. Yeah, yeah I was oh, going to say pa- some people don't even know how to make a path properly. Yeah, I I almost never use paths. I'll I'll do a mask. Well, see, that's the thing about Photoshop. There's so many different ways to do exactly the same thing. Mm-hmm. I want to mask somebody out, you know, cut somebody out of something to do a composite. Mm-hmm. You know, one person will use the pen tool. One person will use like an extract tool and have try to do it automatically. I'll go in and use pens on a mask and do it manually. Mm-hmm. You know, um, as much as I can. Uh, that there's so many different ways to do the same thing, and that's what makes it interesting, you know, uh, and useful to so many people, I guess. Yeah. Uh, you, you. Sh- I'm assuming you shoot raw then. <laughs> I, you know, I, I started DSLR shooting back when the D100 came out. Yeah. 
and um, I had a buddy who um, gave me a big lecture. What is that like? Two thousand two or two thousand three? Sure. He yeah. gave me, you know, raw versus JPEG lecture, and um, and that that was all I needed. Uh, and uh, yeah, Gus convinced me that raw was the only way to go. And you know, I, I try to get it right in the camera. Sure. Um, as much uh, as possible, mm-hmm. but uh, just for the control over white balance in RAW, let, you know, yeah. forget about exposure. Yeah, yeah. Your your landscapes, especially, uh-huh. are are fantastic. Um, uh-huh. And and you have something that I do not have, <laughs> um, <laughs> well, which is probably a good tripod. For, <laughs> well, that too. <laughs> I have a really good tripod. I, I yeah. bet you do. Most landscape guys do. Uh, uh, <laughs> Wait, are we talking Gitzo or what are we talking? Uh, no, I, I'm a really right stuff I, guy. I, I had a feeling oh, about that, really? man. They're they're you have their new carbon fiber one. Yeah. Oh my god, that thing is amazing. Uh, yeah, and their ball heads are great. Oh and yeah. I just I just stripped mine down yesterday, actually, oh, and was it dirty? Clean cleaned it out and and relubed the threads and things, and it and I took it out this morning for a shoot, and it just felt so good. Yeah, they, 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 I mean that's I, there's something about that company. I'm gonna I won't, we'll put a note to it, uh, a note about those guys in the in the show notes here. But for those not familiar, uh, this company called Really Right Stuff. I think they're in Arizona, maybe or California. No, no, no. They're in, they're in San Luis Obispo in California. Uh, California. I know they're somewhere out west. Um, and these guys, I mean, it's a small American company, and they do everything in house. And they, I mean, their stuff, don't get me wrong, it's not cheap, but um, the quality is second to sure. none. I mean, it is just seriously. And they're, they're pretty, they're, they're a pretty small operation, right? They're not, a, I mean, I mean, they're, they're they can't sell that many. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, what, you know, what I was going to say about your work is that the, you have something which I don't have, which is patience. <laughs> mm. Well, that's because I'm so old. Is that what it is? <laughs> is that you didn't when you were younger and as you get older? That's part of it. I, I look at your pictures and I'm like, that's beautiful. And he was but. there at exactly, no, he was there at exactly the right time, right. which meant that mm-hmm. he probably got there long before the right time. And there mm-hmm. were probably plenty of days where he got there and he thought it would be the right time. And then nothing happened. <laughs> Is this true or untrue? Well, I mean, sure. If you're going to be doing landscapes, you have to be out there all the time. And I'm yeah. fortunate to live in a really beautiful place. I live at the foot of Mount Tamalpais, which is um, just seven miles north of San Francisco. But it's very, um, it's very beautiful. It's a coastal mountain range, and there's a lot of water, and um, there's a lot of weather. You know, Ansel Adams used to say that um, a really great photograph is more about the weather than anything else. Yeah. And I totally believe that. And um, for me, it's really all about finding the weather. And um, and so I'm lucky to have this weird, coastal, foggy, uh, you know, very variable weather pattern going on. And um, it allows me to, you know, see things change over time. So I'm out there a lot. I'm a big hiker and. Yeah, if you're going to do landscapes, you have to, you know, just kind of sit there. Yeah, exactly. And go back out there over and over. Yeah. I, you know, I was at uh, Yosemite last year and up at Glacier Point, and I happened to be there just as this cloud was slamming into the side of Half Dome. Mm. And I got some nice pictures of it, but if I knew that it was going to happen an hour and a half from now, I wouldn't have sat around for an hour and a half. Like, I just, I, I don't. I don't see landscapes the same way as you do, you know? Like, I've taken some nice landscape pictures, but only because I happen to be in the right place at the right time, you know? Uh, but I don't seek it out. Uh, and it's just fascinating to me. So, you know, this picture in your landscape section, we'll put your website in those show notes, but um, it's number six on your landscape thing, where you can see the entire sky with the Milky Way. Oh, yeah, with the, is that with the bioluminescent yeah. plankton? Yeah. Yeah, what is up with that picture? Tell us that's about a, that one. That's a great story. So there's a place I've been to a few times called Bowling Ball Beach, uh, which is up in Point Arena about uh, four and a half hours north of San Francisco on the coast and Mendocino. And um, I had done a little commission job for a lighthouse up there for some photography for a wedding brochure for a romantic gazebo thing near the lighthouse. <laughs> So they they gave us free lodging, 
And um, so after I shot at Bowling Ball Beach this one day, my wife and my daughter and I went up there and we got there real late. And uh, I walked out to the edge of the cliff and looked at the ocean and I I thought I was tripping because... (laughs) It was like a roar borealis underground. Well, it was these huge green clouds of gas released off of these rocks. So as the surf would hit the rocks, a large green cloud of gas would fly off the rock. And uh, it literally took me a minute or two of looking at it to verify that what I was seeing was real. It was not a hallucination. or It was not a hallucination. Remnants from the 1960s or something. It had been a long day. I hadn't really slept much the night before, and I had no idea you know, what I was seeing. And, and finally I got, and I remembered I had read about bioluminescent plankton. And I, I said, oh, this must be it. So I, I went back in and grabbed my tripod, and, and it was a completely moonless night with no fog at all so the milky way was really bright and and i just had to balance you know i I went as low iso as i could and i you know if you shoot stars for more than 20 seconds you're starting to get trails yeah so i had to keep the exposure to about 20 seconds and unfortunately at 20 seconds all that green in the ocean was averaged out and Mm. I wasn't getting the huge big puffs in the air because those are very transitory and quick Mm. I was getting all the green plankton kind of averaged in the ocean what I ended up with was these huge pools of green light coming out of the ocean which was very cool but I was envisioning someday I hope I live long enough where I can shoot at ISO you know (laughs) 2 million or something and capture those those green clouds um you know beautiful and and so i always wondered about that about shooting stars like that i mean i've tried to shoot stars and i'm always disappointed and are are you shooting from manhattan (laughs) no even even when i'm out west uh i've tried and i you know what it is i don't try hard enough i need to you know i'm going out to uh moab in two weeks in a week and a half oh oh yeah i was just out there Uh and uh maybe i'll give that a shot off to see what the but you think it has to almost be a moonless night to pull this kind of stuff off oh definitely and if you're going out in two weeks you're in luck because in two weeks it'll be a new moon the full moon is in two days from now day after tomorrow yeah then all you need is a nice steady tripod (laughs) i have i have steady tripod i'm just giving you shit i know (laughs) i I could uh, you know i could uh, you know i i am i have been considering it's funny. I don't use a tripod that often. Right. Um, you don't shoot portraits with a tripod then? No, never. Almost right. never. Um, mm-hmm. I do if it's like something very specific and we're trying to keep it very structured. I know it's exactly going to be like this and we do a setup. For, um, right. for compositing a hand. Right. Yeah, locking something down. But if I'm using, I'm either always shooting with strobes, so that's not a problem. You know, motion's not a problem. Uh, or I'm shooting at so wide open, you know, I shoot mm-hmm. at at 1.2 or 1.8 or 2.2 a lot. Um, really? Because you're, a lot of your images have very deep focus. Um, some of them do. Like the Drabble stuff and that kind of stuff, yeah, I stopped down. In fact, it's funny. I've been stopping down further more often than I used to. Um, uh, but they're also, you're seeing them, you know, small on screen, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's a lot there's a lot of times that I'll I'll shoot wide open and then you know it's not as much of an issue because there's plenty of light coming in. Um, but yeah, there's something about that picture that just killed me. Just being able to see the sky, uh, gorgeous. You know the pictures Ooh. you just sent me. You shot this morning under the bridge. Oh yeah. Uh, I would have been scared I was going to get mugged down there. <laughs> <laughs> It's that's right near the Coast Guard interceptor station. Okay, so I'd be worried about getting shot by the Coast Guard. Oh, God. In fact, in in one of those pictures underneath the pier, you can see this yellow light. Yeah, and um, that's the headlight or searchlight from the interceptor as it was scanning under the pier to see what I was doing there. <laughs> that's funny. When they see you with a camera, they're all right. They didn't bother me this morning. So there's 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 also a picture you have here where it's the moon next to like a radar station, something like that. 
Oh, yeah, it's the radome on top of Mount Tamalpais. That's a composite. Yeah, I was going to say, gonna gonna say you cheated that's on that. Goofy, that's a goofy composite. That was, that was just... Because <laughs> if you pulled that off in camera, I was going to come slap you silly. <laughs> uh, well, you could do the whole you, multiple exposure thing. So no, you, you, you certainly can, could, yeah. Um, and and uh, the, the stuff from the air... Yeah, there. I was going to ask about that. You have two shots here uh, on, on your website, numbers 14 and 15. Uh, you don't happen to own a helicopter by any chance, do you? Oh no, those I, I was um, I was commissioned by the this uh, company that that has a zeppelin. You're kidding! Cool. Um, that uh, <laughs> to come in and do uh, I, they gave me two me and my family two rides on this on this fantastic zeppelin, um, and uh, one was over the San Francisco Bay and one was over Monterey Bay for their promotional materials and uh the yeah the zeppelin is incredible you can open the windows it traveled at about 25 knots so it was very slow Uh ultra quiet the cabin held 12 people and you could open the window and stick your camera out and um it was just an amazing photography platform that's it's almost it was a little disconcerting being something that's moving slowly through the air not- it's like if you've ever done any scuba diving, it's the same feeling of neutral buoyancy yeah. as you have when you're diving. It was it was disconcerting, but I loved it and I would love to do it again. But oh, it's yeah. very expensive. It's like five hundred dollars an hour per person. Whoa. Interesting. That is pricey. So, the um are, are either of these shots um like uh the, the, I'm I'm sensing a little bit of HDR ishness. Which which ones? The Zeppelin ones? Yeah. Um, uh, the Zeppelin ones are, of course, they're not HDR because they're single frames because I was moving. Right. But um, back then, that was a couple years ago, back then I was playing a lot with tone mapping mm-hmm. single images to do detail extraction. Yeah. And um, those are probably a, a blend of a tone mapped and a straight out of the camera image together. No, um, they were really almost, there's like a, it's like really subtly surreal look. You know, it's like just... Yeah. Just real enough to look to you know to be real, but then there's certain just little hints of things here that are like, wait a minute, maybe it's not so real. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that tone mapping is good for that, but uh, I'm not an HDR enthusiast at all. <laughs> yeah, there's stuff that's so uh, you know what it was when it first happened. It was like, oh, this is a different way of doing things. Um, but the people who are best at it make it look not clownish, you know. Um, well, there is an HDR gallery on my site. If you see this green roof gallery, yeah, yeah. it's Hold on a second. It was uh, a yep, local landscape person who asked me to do a study of this green roof she did. And but that's not this is not particularly heavily heavy handed. Well, it took took a lot of work. I mean, th- those those are you know those are probably eight to ten layers in Photoshop of different HDR treatments and straight out of the camera. Yeah, but they look natural. I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, you're you're so, doing the tasteful architectural style of HDR, which I think yeah. is the you know the original intention of it. Not, not exactly. The, not the heightened you know artsy chromasia. Yeah, exactly. Not the yeah. <laughs> the heightened the bad uh, acid trip HDR. <laughs> right. Which which is you know don't get me wrong. I've seen some pretty remarkable images that are like oh wow that's really cool. Now, but, uh, w- yeah. What made you uh, do the mirror images at the Antelope oh, Canyon that's, stuff? That's a great question. Um, well, yeah, we were there a few months ago, and of course, Antelope Canyon and the other canyons around, slot canyons around yeah. the Page, Arizona area, are kind of mecca for photography, and they're probably the most cliched of all landscape images. Yep. They're certainly in that category. Yeah. And um, and I I really wanted to go there um, because so I wanted a, to be cliche too. <laughs> so, so I, I yeah, so I wanted to, you know how can I how can I kind of overcome the cliche? Mm-hmm. You know, how can I make my Antelope Canyon images different than anybody else's? And um, and the, you can see the way I approached it was with finding areas that lent themselves to being reflected and then reflecting them. You know, just by mirroring them in Photoshop in such a way that provided a symmetry which told some sort of a story mm-hmm. within the symmetry. Not symmetry for its own sake, but to tell a story. And you'll see one of those images, um, I mean, is, you know, is, is an amazingly sexual female part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it, I mean, it is 
it is so beautiful. It's the goddess, totally. Sure. And another one is this incredible angel. It has no head, but it is just like a beautiful angel. And another one is a very, very strong female figure. I mean, they're they're just tremendous stories that are that are told in this water hewn sandstone underground. And I mean, I personally felt like I successfully overcame the cliche. Yeah. Um, no, they're very cool. The, oh. the now d- number of things. First of all, what time of the day were you there? <laughs> yeah, well, you, you haven't been to Antelope Canyon, but I have been. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I got there as soon as they opened, and okay, yeah. in um, Upper Antelope Canyon mm-hmm. on the power station side. Yep. Uh, that's when I got there when it opened, and I was lucky to be there before it got crowded. But then I went over to Lower Antelope across the road. Sure. And it was you know full on. Uh, crowd scene like uh, the Disneyland of photography in fact there were tours going around and people would hand the tour guide their camera and the tour guide would take the picture of course or yeah. the people yeah. which, which was just surreal yeah and you, and, wrote, you wrote in the back of one of those uh, trucks and you know tipped people <laughs> and yeah you're driving through the sand dunes to get over to the place that's, that's right Did, you know, were, you, were you worried about getting uh, in those kinds of situations, are you the kind of person who's terrified of getting sand in your camera, or do you not change your lenses anyway out in the field? And you know? uh, no, I changed. I changed my lenses in Antelope. I, I did. I, you know, I, I know how to clean my sensor, and I'm pretty careful. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's just a camera. I mean, I'm just going to yep. get another one in a couple of years anyway. So what's the big sure. deal? Yeah, it's uh, they're beautiful. And when I was there, we were. I don't know what time we got there. Too late because we had driven from somewhere in Utah. And so it was like around 11, say, 11, 30, 12. And so the way the light was hitting, it was very dark in the place, you know? Um, oh, yeah. The light has to be um, yeah. just right. Which is funny. A lot of the pictures that you see that are sort of the iconic, iconic pictures of Antelope Canyon, literally those are the guys who live in the area and like go there every week, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> it cracks me up. I got my light beams. If you look in that gallery, I yeah, got Yeah, I saw them. I saw them. <laughs> I got I you know I bagged those beams, man. <laughs> no, those are amazing shots. It's 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 a very strange place. Uh, oh, it's the weirdest the weirdest place for photography I have ever seen. Yeah, now, you the crowds are so ex- in extreme. You you shoot people and you shoot you shoot a lot of landscapes, but you also shoot people. I'm I'm uh, highly conflicted. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Uh, it's just a, just a horrible, uh, horrible thing. I can't, I can't focus. <laughs> on one or sh- Did you just on make a photography sh- joke? I, I no, it was not a joke. <laughs> okay. And uh, I, I don't know which I, I, I don't know which I like better. I, I just, uh, I love people because they are always changing and it's always unique. And I, I, in some ways, I prefer people because they're just so beautiful. And I just I just love people, but then the feeling I get when I am out there alone in a beautiful landscape, and I I can just be by myself all day, and uh, the light gets perfect, and I'm behind the camera looking through that viewfinder, and it's um, a real feeling of grace uh, that I don't get when I'm shooting people. So I I kind of want it all. <laughs> Now, you, well, that thing, that's begs the question. You also, you teach. I, I teach uh, middle school students yeah. uh, in, in beginning photography. Is so it, our, our, that, our future competition. That, is that your full-time job now, or is that what you're doing? No, no, I actually do it as a volunteer. Oh, wow. I'm, I'm a volunteer uh, teacher. Yeah, I, I teach. Um, last year I did two 10-week courses uh, at my daughter's middle school. Um, and this year I'll just do one, um, but it's it's just a way for me to learn from these young kids who have that beginner's mind, right? Uh, about how to see because the you know I keep trying to get back to that place where my preconceptions aren't running the show, and um, and so the reason why I teach is actually so I can learn. From these kids who ostensibly don't know anything, but they really know everything. Um, so it's really more for me, and it, it's nice that they get something out of it too. Nice. I, and you're, are you teaching these kids um, with film or digital? 
Yeah, it's you know we don't have uh, money for a uh, wet lab, so it's all digital. Yeah, what's film? <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. The, no, did you see the uh, the stock for Kodak is literally under a dollar now? Oh, like they're going to get delisted soon. Oh man, it'll be in the penny stock exchange. Seriously, um, and you know people are always saying, "Oh, film won't go away." Well, you know what? Like it probably will, and or it will get to the point where there is a tiny company that sells a roll of 35 millimeter film for $40 a slice, you know? Yeah. Uh, mm. It's, I, I, I foresee the future when that happens, you know? Yeah. I don't think uh, it's a question of if it's just a matter it's of when, when. Yeah. you know, I was reading a thing this morning and they were saying how, uh, the last like video store in LA, like independent video store was going out of business or something. Sure. A uh, yeah. rental place. And it kind of made me think that, you know, ten years ago, everyone said, "Oh, well, you'll watch movies through the internet." And people said, "What are you? What are you crazy? Like, I got my video store across the street or whatever." Um, and that stuff happens. It just happens more slowly than people think, or you know, more gradually, so you don't notice it as much. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's, it's the same thing that we were talking about before about the whole commoditization thing. Yeah, you know, it's happening yeah. every, everywhere. I mean, you know, now small shops can't compete with the with the big internet. You know, gorillas. What do you want to call them? <laughs> Um, yeah, you mean Amazon? Sure, Amazon, Google, what have you. Yeah. It, just as a little anecdote related to the Kodak issue is, I know someone who has a friend who's been shooting Kodachrome his whole life, and when they stopped making Kodachrome, was it last year? Mm-hmm. He stopped shooting. He hasn't. Uh, he'll. He said, "I'm never going to shoot again." Wow. Uh, I thought that was really interesting. That's... Yeah, I I asked Jay Mazel the same thing because he was, you know, one of the five guys that mm-hmm. was like the Kodachrome champion and he you know he shoots with a Nikon 1DX or S or what, what is the 26 5 megapixel one the X oh the, the, the D3X D3X rather sorry yeah um and and he said doesn't make a difference to him but then again he doesn't do his own post even on his digital pictures yeah and he's already so he's already made his money you know he just takes the pictures and he hands them off to his assistant who does a lot of the post for him but so for him it actually is the same process but he doesn't have any misgivings about the quality of the pictures he gets out of his camera versus the other one i think that i think there are some people gary who maybe shot film for years tried a digital camera in 2004 mm. and said oh this looks like crap and then we're just like no i don't like digital but haven't tried one lately. You know what I mean? The yeah, digital cameras, digital cameras keep getting better. That's where true. film wasn't getting any better, you know. Um, and it's I don't know. It's an interesting thing. I get pictures out of my 5D that are better quality than I get from scanning negatives through my Hasselblad sometimes. You know, sure. Um, which is amazing. You know, I took a picture uh, that picture at Half Dome. I shot with my 5D Mark II with a 50 millimeter prime on it. Like just a couple snapshots, like snap, 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 like that. Mm-hmm. And I <laughs> I have a print on my wall that's thirty by forty eight, right? And it's pretty sure it's like thirty by forty eight. You wouldn't have been able to do that 10, 15, 20 years ago, even with film. Not with a unless I was up there with a four. Negative. Unless I was up there with a four by five. Yeah, you know, it's true. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. We're lucky. Yeah, we. I mean, in my literally in my pocket, I can shoot something that could be a poster. Um. And I, I don't know. I just think that people need to step back and, and realize that. The, the, I mean, I think it's a little bit like the nostalgia thing with the old lenses. It's like, well, was it really that good? A lot of people were taking stuff with film, and it looked like crap too. You know, so there's 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 crappy stuff for all around. I guess it's trying to find the good stuff that is the trick. Hey, you know the best camera is the one you got with you. Yes, yeah, that's what they <laughs> you know, say. Yeah. You know, you don't carry a smartphone, which we talked about earlier. <laughs> no, but I carry my camera pretty much free. I, I also have a little Canon S95. Oh, oh I've heard those, those are, are pretty great. sweet. Yeah, it's a great camera. And uh, sure, when I'm just going out with the family and, you know, or whatever, I, you know, I don't want to piss off my wife by dragging my gear around. I, I keep that in my pocket. I, I love it. Do you shoot raw with that too? Yeah, sure. It doesn't uh, have like the dynamic range that yeah. the D seven hundred has, but it has, you know, a half to one stop extra dynamic range in there. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. I've always thought about getting a little one. In fact, recently I went down on a trip to DC with some friends and I carried a Leica M four with some film in it. And mm. I shot two frames on it. And the rest <laughs> of the pictures I took on my iPhone. 
Yeah. Right. Speaking of the iPhone, I, I mean, I, I've decided I am definitely going to hop on that. Uh, and the, the like majority of my decision is based around the camera just because, I mean, I'm looking at my, my photo habits and because my, my, my Nikon rig has, has become, I guess that much more work related. You know what I'm yeah. saying? It's like, I, I'm, mm-hmm. that, I'm that much less inclined to, I mean, you know, some people say like, oh, I spend all day in front of the computer. So the last thing I want to do when I get home is, 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 you know, sit down at the computer again. Um, somehow that kind of happened to me a little bit with my, with my camera stuff with my, you know, my nice, big, expensive, fancy, schmancy, you know, lights and what have you. Not that, not that I don't like using them, but I'm this, I'm that much less inclined to just take them out for the sake of taking them out and, and having some fun. And, uh, you know, conversely, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun with the, with the iPhone. I think it's a, it's just a really fun form factor. Yep. Um, it brings me back to. I don't know if I, if you guys have ever, I think I wrote this, this post on my blog a long time ago about how, when I first returned to photography, like, uh, with my first digital camera, it was one of those Nikon Coolpix cameras with the little articulated screen. And it basically, one of the things that got me back into photography was the fact that I could compose shots without having the camera, um, affixed to my face, you know, being able to take your head, Mm -hmm. head away from the camera suddenly gives you this whole new perspective and i i kind of like that i'm i'm pretty attached to the you know to the being able to compose at at arm's length you know or finding the right angle by you know moving the camera around without having to put my head on it you know Um, it's interesting yeah the the my my sister and brother-in-law both ordered the new camera the new phone rather (laughs) the new camera um and I'm actually heading down to Austin on Wednesday, and they're supposed to be delivered on Friday, right? Because Friday is when it comes out. Sweet. So if they get them, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to try a test shot with mine and theirs. Nice. Same and then thing. pull them in. Because I really wonder, yeah, it's an 8 megapixel sensor, but are you actually getting any more detail? Or is it just that the, you know, is it, well, is it a marketing thing or is it actually more information? You know, There's apparently another element in there and there's you know more contrast in the optics. And yeah. I think that'll make a bigger difference than the sensor size. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm just interested in how much of a difference it makes. I hear know? it's also like a skosh wider too. You know, I think it's like another couple, whatever you want to call it, millimeters. Oh, oh that's nice too. Yeah, it's like, yeah. Yeah. It, they the, keep making it harder and harder for me to not carry an iPhone. <laughs> you know, it's... Gary, I I took a picture down at the Capitol building of like the ceiling and the rotunda, and I printed it out eight by ten here, and it looks great. Off my phone, I bet. Yeah, I bet. that's just insane. It's a great phone. I mean, it's a great camera. Just take if they take email out of it, you know, (laughs) you can turn the email off. It's true. There's no there's no law saying that you have to set it up. I I don't know if I can if I have the device if I could if you have the will self control I don't. I'd have to test myself and see. I don't. I th- I think it's worth it. I think you should do it because here's another thing. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you know this, Gary, but for someone uh, who spends as much time out landscaping as you do, landscape photography, you know what I mean. Um, there are some really fantastic apps um, that can be really but useful. I, I use the Photographer's Ephemeris heavily on my Mac, which is what. And then I, oh, you, you don't know the Photographer's Ephemeris. I don't know what that is. No. It's a, it's a fantastic uh, app hooked into Google Maps that shows you the um, location of the sunrise, sunset, moonrise, moonset, all the astronomical uh, directions, the things are coming nice. at, yeah, where Everything. to. It, it, it is awesome thing on the Mac. It's it's free. The Mac and the PC is free, and it's just a cheap where, app on the iPhone. Where you should be to take a certain picture at a certain way at a certain light, or just yeah, where, so you, yeah, where the like, sun's going to be. If I'm at this spot and I want to shoot this lake, let's say, with the sun rising over the lake, what time of year, what day do I have to go there to be here and see the sun there? When I see this stuff, I always think about, like, if you handed an iPad with Google Maps to Magellan, he'd be like, God damn you people. <laughs> like, really? I just, I just lost 23 guys on this, on this, on this ship because of this stuff. Well, we would, but we would, dude. I mean, just to flip it, we wouldn't have that stuff if he no, didn't do that. So. I, I know. I'm just, I'm just making a joke. It's just, it's like the, it's like the people used to, you know, fight over spices, and now I can go to the store and buy like 400 pounds of pepper, you know, for a buck fifty. Yeah. Uh, yeah. People died over salt. Exactly. It's you know, true, man. It's, it's, it's just. Uh, all right, we took enough of Gary's time, I think. <laughs> okay. Um, time to go out. We're gonna go uh, picking huckleberries on the mountain now. Oh. Tough, tough life Gary has out there yeah, in California. Must be tough. Hey, it's Sunday. <laughs> uh, all right, you get going, Gary. Thank you very much for taking the time. 
Yeah, it was a pleasure thank, speaking with you, man. Thank you, thank you very much, Bill. Thank you, Dan. I'm, I'm a huge fan of both your work, and I'm honored to be asked to be on the show. And I look forward to listening to myself to go to sleep Oh, next. yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so if it works or causes some sort of a weird brain part. <laughs> yeah, it's like that weird space-time kind of, continuum thing where you yeah. can't touch yourself, otherwise you'll paradox yourself yeah, into non-existence. It's a conditional loop that he never gets out of. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you want to get a hold of us, you can find us at uh, circuitous.tv, uh, at CircConv on Twitter, at Bill Wadman on Twitter, at Dan Gottesman on Twitter, and circuitousconversations at gmail.com. Yeah. But what about you, Gary? Do you have any uh, links that you'd like to share with everyone? Oh, I, you know, I'm just at uh, GaryYost.com. Which is fantastic. I like your site. You like the live books thing? Just as a last little... I do now. I, I wasn't a fan until they launched their new scaler system. It's just really easy. I don't have to think about it. I can maintain it trivially. Um, yeah. And I like the scaler system a lot. Interesting. Eh, it's expensive, but... Yeah, what um, do they charge? Uh, I forget, because I haven't paid for it in about eight months, and oh. I don't have a good memory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's we not, can just look it's not, yeah, I'll have to take a look. We'll put a link in there for that too. We'll give we'll give live books a little a little uh, plug. Uh, all right, till next week, we will talk to you soon. Thank you once again, Gary. Hey, thank you. All right, talk to you soon.